Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine. But anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA plus rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts on our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is Johnny McGovern, American stand-up comedian, actor, musician, songwriter, podcaster and show host. Johnny is known as the sharp-talking host of chat shows Hey Queen and Look At Her, on which he interviews iconic celebrities, including drag queens, musicians, actors, adult film stars and prominent figures within the LGBTQIA community. As a musician, he has travelled the world as his alter ego, the gay pimp, and his hit single, Man Areas, has clocked up over 22 million streams on Spotify. He is openly gay and the dictionary definition of daddy. Johnny, welcome to A Gay Old Time. Hey, Queen. Hey, Queen, how are you? You have the best voice. Can I say that straight away? I love speaking to you and I love hearing you because your voice is just like, it's like liquid pleasure when you speak. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, my word. I could end it there. But there's so much I want to speak to you about. Um, welcome to Gay Old Time. I want to go back because I see you on the TV now doing your fabulous shows, you know, Hey Queen and Look at Her and all of that. And we see you touring the world as the gay pimp and all of these fabulous things that you do. You look so confident. But I want to go back to a little queer Johnny McGovern when he was a child. W were you confident back then as well? Certainly not. <laughs> I was definitely, I mean, certainly when it came to the queer stuff, I was, uh, well, you know, I was kind of a, I was a heavy set kid and I definitely lived in my imagination more than I did in real life. Um, I, I spent a lot of time alone in my room in fantasy land, really. <laughs> Eventually, as I got through high school, I made more friends and, uh, you know, sort of came out of my shell, but definitely spent a lot of time in fantasy land being best friends with like the Golden Girls and Lucille Ball and, uh, you know, the cast of Good Times. And I was obsessed with TV shows and television and living in the fantasy of what I wanted my future to be. So, yeah, I was I was very in my head as a kid. Were you aware of being different as a child? Did you feel different to maybe like your the kids around you? Um, well, certainly once I started to realize that I was gay, I definitely felt different. And that was, uh, uh, yeah, that was, you know, that I spent all of like all of junior high and early and, and high school really like with that in the back of my head, like, oh, my God, I think I'm gay. Oh, God. Because that was during a time where, there was nobody to really be an example of, you know, a, a grown and happy gay man. I mean, the only TV shows we had about gay people were stuff to do with AIDS uh, or like Blanche's brother and the Golden Girls, who was closeted. And, you know, even Blanche couldn't accept him. So it wasn't. Uh, so, yeah, that was something that really weighed heavily on me for, for many years that I think made me feel separate from a lot of people. What were you like at school, Johnny? I mean, were you somebody that dived into your lessons or were you very much... Was school an escape or was school something you dreaded going to? Uh, no, you know what? I was, uh, as one might expect, I was a dramatic theatre queen. So I lived for performing. I lived for being the star of the junior high school lunchtime improv group or whatever thing felt so important at the time. So I was really, I was big, I was big and loud and, you know, I had a rat tail. <laughs> so I was, I wasn't, I wasn't like a, yeah, I wasn't like a sad and quiet person. I was just like a big goofy uh, theater fag, you know what I mean? <laughs> even before people were calling me a fag before I even knew what that was. 
So was the stand-up comedian that we all kind of like fell in love with later in your life, was that stand-up comedian kind of already there? The humour was within from an early age. I definitely was really into comedy and really into performing. And well, I went to acting school. And then when I when I graduated that and moved to New York, that the, the I started to really, you know, bring that that comedy performer out because I realized that's what I really wanted to do. Because did you travel around a lot when you were a kid as well? Because I, I think I read that your parents traveled around and you were in Egypt and Thailand, various places around the world. I mean, was it hard to kind of like get roots? Well, you know, I was born in Brooklyn and I lived there until I was eight years old. And my mom was uh, the head of Asia and the South Pacific for Planned Parenthood. So when I was eight, we moved to Thailand so that she could be closer to that area and be able to travel around to all those countries without being gone for like six months at a time. And my dad was an artist and an art teacher, so he would work at the international schools wherever we went. So we lived in Thailand for five years, and then we moved to Egypt, and I lived there for five years. So, um, but it wasn't, that was certainly not a hardship. That was a luxury. I mean, I was able to live a much more glamorous life in those countries as I would have been able to in the States. I mean, you know, when you, when you're in that sort of international community and you're working with, uh, and your parents are working for a, a company, like a, a lot of times you're, they, they pay the rent, they, you know, they, they cover your school. So you end up, your family ends up with a lot more disposable income than you would in America. You know, uh, you can have a housekeeper, you can have a driver. I came back to America when I was in college and was like, is the maid here anywhere? Is this, Wait, is this what is this on my floor of my room? Mess? How does one clean up such a thing? So yeah, I didn't realize I was not rich until I moved back to America. <laughs> but it was great. I got a chance so to where's travel. Where's the staff? I need staff now. Right, exactly. I was able to travel around. Like high school trips would be like to London, to Brussels, to you know, to it was really incredible. And I got to grow up with a fully international um group of friends uh, and people that I went to school with from, from all around the world, got to travel a lot. So that was really incredible. So when did sexuality kick in for you? I mean, you, you mentioned before, I mean, people calling you fag and, you know, I got the dirty, rotten, queer, all of that. I mean, we all went through that. And I think, you know, for me, I kind of knew it was within me, but I didn't know what to do about it. Was that the same for you? I think I can remember kind of like, going to the locker room in seventh grade when people started to actually get naked and change for gym class and then going home and thinking about it <laughs> and being very disturbed that what I was really interested in was Marcus from my gym class and his big Swedish dick. You know what I mean? Like that was like what I was interested in. And then the locker room became like a place of real fantasy for my inside, my interior life. Um, though I was certainly not an athletic person and I hated gym class, but going to the locker room provided a lot of uh, fantasy elements <laughs> for my private journey, if you will. So I've got to ask then, did the fantasy with Marcus ever become a reality? No, I was completely non-sexual outside of heterosexuality in high school at all. I was also, I was heavy set. I was not, I was not in touch with my body. I wasn't, you know, the idea of like being gay didn't really connect with me till I was in, in college. I mean, when I actually, when I actually did have gay sex, it was like, oh, <laughs> yes, yes. What have I been, what have I been worried about all this time? I'm, it's not a question whether I'm gay or not. I am gay, but it wasn't really until then. There was a lot of tortured years of like, oh, you know, that, that sort of like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm bi, maybe I'll, I'll just get over it. I'm, I'm, I'm not gay. You know, there's many, many years of interior terror, uh, that happened throughout high school. I had a girlfriend. I, you know, had sex with other girls in college. When I finally got the magic, I got the magic and I got it good. <laughs> When the penny dropped, the penny dropped. Um, so dating then, I mean, even 
when you were dating girls and stuff, I mean, you know, again, I think so many of us do it in those first formative years because we're kind of like, it's expected from all the people around, you know, our friends are doing it. You go on dates with your mates. You're like, okay, yeah, I'll pair up with so-and-so. But then you realise, well, it's not quite what you want. Were you aware that it was not for you from from the get-go? Yeah, you know, I mean, like I do, there was... Uh, you know, I had I had one long term girlfriend in high school, and for like the last two years of high school, and uh, you know, we we did it all. We lost our virginity together, and um, I did enjoy the physicality of that. I mean, the sensuality and the and being intimate with someone and being loving. I really liked all of that. It wasn't turning me on. You know what I mean? Like I was making it. The, the the of course touching another person and f- being physical with somebody else was arousing but it was not especially when you're a teenager but it was not like it wasn't hot you know what i mean it wasn't like sizzling i wasn't like oh my god oh god i wasn't horny for that it wasn't until i you know realized it wasn't marcus definitely not Definitely not. Marcus, I'm sure he's married with five children and living in Sweden now. <laughs> he, may, he may be listening in. You never know. If you are, Marcus, let us know. Um, what about, I mean, you know, who were your fantasies at that time then? I mean, you, you mentioned before, I mean, obviously as a child, you were into like the Golden Girls and Lucille Ball. Um, were there the male sort of like fantasies? Did you have posters on your wall of certain people and just, the, you know, those are the people that I want to actually sort of, that, that I find physically attractive, but at that point you were scared. Uh, too scared to say or admit to um you know i was like i said i was really in my head and in my room and into tvs and movies so what i did was i had shoplifted a book which was the guide to male nudity in movies and in this book it was like a like a like a reference uh (laughs) text that had written out all all the movies of the last however many years and what piece of male anatomy was shown in that movie. And so I would like go to the, I would hunt down these videos that were like, okay, Johnny Depp's butt in private resort at 2365 for 10 seconds. And so then I would like find that video and then freeze frame, freeze frame, freeze frame, freeze frame. I mean, like the amount of uh, J-O-ing that you, the youth of the 80s did before the internet for the smallest amount of nudity uh, (laughs) was pretty outrageous compared to the easy access people have to full on everything nowadays. But yeah, I was... It was movie stars, handsome men, of course, jocks and, you know, sporty guys. And, you know, typical thought of guys with good bodies was, uh, you know, of course, I was fascinated with the locker room. So it was very like sporty dudes, muscles, the typical type of thing that you would you would expect. And, and movie stars, naked movie stars and their butts. Do you still have that book? It might be somewhere deep in the in in the bowels of my my parents' garage or something like that. <laughs> but I believe it's still available, though you don't need it. I'm sure there's a website version of it now. I may have to track it down on Amazon or other websites after this podcast. Um, so you mentioned your parents there. So then coming out, was there a coming out moment or was it one of those sort of natural things where they kind of knew or what, what was the story for you, Johnny? Well, you know, I went to acting school, which was very liberating. I went to Boston University. And um, the thing was, even though I wasn't identifying as gay when I got there, because I was a male in acting school, everyone thought I was gay anyway. You know, when I finally did, which about halfway through college, start like hooking up with guys and um, accepting like, yeah, I'm gay and I like it. That was, that was, you know, I went through that thing for myself. And then when I started to really feel more secure about that, I was always really close with my parents. So I did not want to pretend with them. So I did a classic coming out on Christmas morning. We opened the pride, gone back to Egypt where they were still living. And uh, Christmas morning after the presents, I like sat them down and told them, well, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm gay. And I realized that I'm gay and that I want you to know who I really am. 
And my parents, of course, uh, are very, very liberal, very loving, very supportive. And they, you know, they accepted it right away. I mean, my mom said, as long as you're having good sex, that's all that matters. Y- your mom said yeah. that. That's pretty good. Did you tell her you were? Uh, we d- didn't discuss it any further <laughs> than that. I mean, like, you know, like. Probably very you know, like a, a parent, you know, like when your parents are so open, you're like, okay, but that's enough. That We don't need to talk about it any further than that. But then obviously later, I mean, with my work as the gay pimp and doing songs about gay sex, they knew what was up. So when you came out to your parents then, obviously that was a brilliant experience. Was there any area of your life where the reaction wasn't so good or was coming out to to anybody always a pleasurable experience for you? I was in a bubble, you know, where I was living, I was in Boston in college, surrounded by other people in, you know, the arts. And then I was moved straight to New York to the gay community there. So, no, I never really had a negative uh, experience with it. I mean, because because of the circles that I was moving in and the type of family that I had. So when you left college then, so you went through acting school, I mean, after that, what? where did the career go then? I mean, did the comedy come first, acting? What was the, what was the progression from there, Johnny? Well, you, you know, at the end of acting school, it's all, it's, or, or at least at the time where, where I was going, like it was all built up to... Uh, the presentation you were going to make for the agents and you were going to get to New York and you were going to do this presentation. It was called the consortium and all the schools and the consortium would present for the agents. And of course your dream was that like the minute you got there, you were going to do it. And it happened before that you performed your little skits and your little scenes. And then you got called into the casting directors and maybe you were cast immediately on something you were signed to an agent. That year, my school had broken away from the consortium, so their acting school presentation was kind of low budge in some place, not that well attended. So the dreams of magically being signed by an agent and swept up into immediately working did not happen. And so I moved to New York and opened up Backstage Magazine and, uh, you know, started like auditioning out of the back of Backstage. I moved to New York with my best friend, a girl named Maxine, who, uh, you know, was my my best friend all the way through college. She was not in acting and she was going to NYU. We sort of teamed up to move to New York, which is the best way to move to a big new city is with your best friend because you're part of a unit and that's so much easier and more fun and more safe. Um, And so I started to just go around and do terrible plays and weird improv groups. But at the end of college, I had been performing a one man show at the time. It was called alter egos where I played like all sorts of different archetypal characters in a big, broad show kind of, Basically, a ripping off like the shows that I was obsessed with uh, at that time, which was like Whoopi Goldberg's one person show on Broadway. Uh, there was a performer named Hazel Goodman who did a one woman show. I was really obsessed with uh, with the, that type of performance, and I thought like the way the Whoopi Goldberg had said it, gotten her start was she had started doing her one person shows and then got discovered by Steven Spielberg and then got on Broadway and then did movies. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow it to the T. So I started performing that show in New York, wherever I could. And then to promote that, I would start going to open mics and other places and doing those characters at those places. And that's really where it all started. You, You start to meet people and you start to get, you know, exposure and going to cool places. I mean, basically there was a whole scene on at the time on the Lower East Side, which was these two open mics. One was called Surf Reality and one was called Collective Unconscious. And they were run by two best friends who lived together on the Lower East Side. Now the Lower East Side now is completely different. It's fancy hotels, it's nightclubs, it's expensive $5,000 a month studios. But at that time it was kind of like wild. I mean, you could get a, you know, $500 studio and like there was no coffee shops. There was no yoga studios. It was, it was kind of rough. And these two places were these really incredible hubs for performers of all types. And they were the first people that really started to give me attention. And I started to work with them and 
perform my one person shows and my characters and started creating these shows with groups of people that I met at these venues and performing at these venues and starting for the first time to be noticed and uh, given attention for, for my work. So that's kind of like full circle. So like little Johnny back in his bedroom, back in the day, sort of like with his characters there. And there you are performing on the east side, doing characters there too. So it is kind of full circle. What, what, what was your gay life like at that point? Were you dating? Were you going clubbing, going to the bars? Uh, at that time, I was definitely, uh, I was still kind of like a goody two-shoes at the beginning of my time in New York. Like, I just want a boyfriend and I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't do drugs or do anything like that. Well, that all of course changed. I mean, basically when, when Maxine and I were living in the East Village, we ended up getting a new roommate who was this guy named Ryan and Ryan had, um, was much more worldly than either Maxine or I. I mean, he had just spent a year traveling the country with his drug dealer boyfriend who had gone to jail. And then he was getting out of going to jail himself by going to cooking school in New York City. And he and his mom had come to New York and magically found like our roommate wanted ad the day they got there. We met him. We liked him. And we all started hanging out. Now he was like a club kid from back in the day from when he was, he was like partying in clubs when he was a teenager. So he was like going out and like hitting the clubs and he started to convince us to like start going out to some of the legendary places with him. I think the first place I went out was uh, with him was limelight, which is the club in New York city that was, you know, very famous from party monster uh, but at this time had been revamped into a new sort of gay, uh, you know, a Sunday night house music party. And it was at an old church, a giant old church. And so I went out with Ryan that first night and I think took my first hit of, uh, you know, MDMA ecstasy and had like the greatest time of my life. I was making out with guys. I was on the dance floor. And I remember going back home with Maxine to Maxine and being like, girl, you got to go. We got to go. You got to come. We are going to have fun. And so we then started going out to clubs, experiencing the fun of, you know, party drugs and things and, and house music, understanding why a remix is 20 minutes long, suddenly understanding why. Um, and that really opened up the whole world. I mean, I, we met all sorts of colorful characters. I met my very first boyfriend who was a five foot four raver from Connecticut named Lil Ricky. Um, <laughs> and we, and the whole world really opened up and that actually also influenced my work too, because we would go to these big clubs, the tunnel, Roxy, Twilo, and because I was so obsessed with my work at the same time as discovering this whole new world, I would be sitting in the club waiting for the drugs to hit. And I would be thinking like about the characters that were in my one person show and how they would react in these environments. And that really actually all came together to, uh, be to to come into a new version of the one person show that I've been doing in college. And I sort of changed it all up and based it in New York and in these clubs. And that became the show that really gave me my first big sort of hit in New York. I wrote the show and it was called Dirty Stuff. And it was about all these characters and it was all intertwined in these clubs and with characters based on my experiences in the club too. So that was, so it was all really perfect uh, sort of melding for my imagination and for where I was at that time. Would you say that that time is the time that you felt completely comfortable in your own skin, though, that you kind of found you, you found your place, you found your tribe? Definitely. I'd say like once I hit the Lower East Side and I was performing around there and being sort of celebrated for being myself in the wildest, weirdest, gayest way. I mean, those Lower East Side places, while I was living this club life, the Lower East Side part of it, I was like one of the only gay guys around there uh, in that scene. But I was extreme. I was celebrated. I was voted. There was like, you know, like a joke sort of comedian pageant called Mr. Lower East Side. And, you know, I, I remember 
I won it. <laughs> I was lifted on the shoulders of everyone. And I was singing songs that I was singing down there with to that mostly straight audience were the things that became gay pimp songs, songs like Girl, I Fucked Your Boyfriend and uh, Soccer Practice and things like that. That all started in that environment where I was kind of like, you know, trying to scare and intimidate in the nicest way all of the straight people with the power of sexuality and also being finally like having a boyfriend. I, I got into great shape as you can in your twenties. And I was really feeling myself more than ever. And that was really where that gay pimp character started to evolve from is that I was feeling extremely empowered in myself and really for the first time fully realized as a gay man. And, uh, it influenced everything. And it, 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 that, that time was extremely inspirational and launched all of the things that I still do today. Well, that's the thing. Cause I'm mean, obviously a lot of our listeners will, will know you from Hey Queen. will know you from look at her, um, know you from obviously grilling all of those fabulous girls that we see on drag race. So is that the period that, that drag came into your life as well? I mean, was that very much part of that scene or did that come before? No, that was, that was it. When I was at, when I, the first real, well, I started to become friends with, uh, nightlife people during that time. When I went to, I would go every week to the Roxy. Now the Roxy was this club on 17th street, 10th Avenue, and it was a huge roller skating rink. And during the weekend on Saturdays, there would be like 5,000 shirtless gay guys at this party. And the person who performed uh, every night or every Saturday night was Kevin Aviance, who now everyone knows better than ever because his voice staying cut deep was sampled on Beyonce's Pure Honey. Um, but he was the star of that night. And many he was like, you know, the queen of, of New York clubs. And he would perform in a way that was so inspirational and exciting. Like this was a big night with long mixes. And so it wasn't like they would stop the music and be like, okay, guys, we're going to do a show. No, the music would keep going and the lights would just start to slowly come up and you'd see him standing on stage doing a little move or starting to lip sync some kind of repeated phrase. And then eventually, you know, you'd sort of come out of your drug haze and be like, oh my God, is that a show? Whoa. And then his backup dancers who were called the cunties would come on stage and they would hit the five, six, and they would start to hit a move. And then they would start lip syncing and the show would come out of nowhere. And that of course, still to this day is the most inspirational shows that I've ever seen. And that really started to get me into the world of drag and the world of performance. And then of course I got really deep into that whole scene and became very good friends with all the people in nightlife, including Kevin Aviance. And I eventually started throwing, I started throwing parties in New York. And so I was deep into that world. I was throwing some of the biggest parties in the city for probably about a good eight years. I got really deep into that nightlife world. So my connection to nightlife and go-go and drag really started there because I, I was working in that world. Have you ever done drag? Um, I am a very ugly woman, but I, <laughs> I, when I was on Big Gay Sketch Show, which was on Logo for three seasons back in the early aughts, um, I did. They they put me in drag for that, but it wasn't pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the gay pimp earlier obviously that is your kind of like musical alter ego let's explain the story of how that came to be because this is such a fantastic story that started because i in this lower east side scene i, I had become part of this group called grindhouse and go go and that was like a group of different solo performers who would come together and we would kind of slap together a show with a very light storyline. And in between the light storyline, people would take their moment to perform their monologue or their piece or whatever it was. These shows were a mess. They were uh, packed. People were smoking weed. People were drunk. People were doing whatever, but they were a hit. Um, we started to get so much attention for it that I, uh, being a good theater queen, was like, we really need to pull this together, guys. We need to really put on a good show. And so I had and, – and at the same time, I am 
like I said, becoming fully confident, fully realized with myself as a gay guy, singing songs, you know, like Girl, I Fucked Your Boyfriend, and feel, feeling, feeling myself. So, and at the same time, Eminem was coming out with his first album where he was dropping a lot of use of the word fag. And I remember thinking that was very, I was very annoyed by that. And I remember that people on TV were very like not taking a stand against it, being kind of brushed in under the rug. And I remember seeing the Grammys where there were people protesting Eminem, but across the street. And they were just like in some little area being like, no, Eminem. And I thought like, ugh, we need to do something more fierce than stand across the street to protest. I said, I know what I'll do. Just like any good homo, I'm going to write a musical to protest. <laughs> so I wrote this show called uh, The Wrong Fag to Fuck With, Gay Pimp versus Eminem. And in this show, it, it took, it started off with like a, like a vignette of a, of a young teen gay guy hanging out with his, his buddies. And they're like, Hey, what's up, Timmy? How you doing? Hey, we got to play this cool new song. It's by Eminem. And then they played the song and it was like, I hate fags. Fags are gay. I want to kill fags every day. And then Tammy, Timmy was like, oh, I'm sad. That makes me sad. My friend, I wish I wasn't a fag. And then the radio sound came on. It's like, and now coming to you on the top of the charts it's the gay pimp with his new song the wrong fag to fuck with and then i appear at the back of the stage as the gay pimp singing this song and timmy's like wow i feel good and then the story moves to the mtv video music awards where the gay pimp who's in this world a fantasy rhinestone covered pop star uh, ends up battling Eminem uh, and his evil coke sniffing manager, or whatever the characters that we we had in there. I think Courtney Love was a character. Erica Badu was a character. And in that show, there was, of course, it all ends with uh, you know the gay pimp. Like I think Eminem tried to drug uh, <laughs> to drug the gay pimp with magical chocolate covered ecstasy, and like you know it was a wild, it was a wild like sort of panto type of show. And then, of course, it ends with, you know, me singing Girl, I Fucked Your Boyfriend while uh, humping Eminem in the butt at the end of the show. And so that had the gay pimp in it. It had a lot of the songs that I was starting to develop in that character. And it became a hit. Like, the New York Magazine wrote about it. Suddenly, this show, which was already popular, was having lines around the block. And... I started to go around and perform these songs at gay bars. And because I was like in my own delusional fantasy world and watching a lot of NSYNC and Britney and Justin at the VMAs, I thought like, well, if I'm going to do pop star shows at these gay bars, I should really do it big. So I would start to perform at places like the cock or the hole. Don't you love those names of different bars Um, (laughs) on their tiny little, you know, box, you know, cardboard box stages that were like five foot by five foot. But I would bring like, you know, five go-go boys dressed as soccer players and four drag queens dressed as cheerleaders. And I would give you these big shows in these tiny little places. And that was what really started to get that character around and really was a whole new venture for me because people started to really pay attention. Okay, so a couple of questions there. First off, did you ever get a reaction back from Eminem? And then secondly, were you surprised how that led on to literally, you know, traveling around the world with a gay pimp? Um, of course, there was no reaction from Eminem. <laughs> I think he was busy being a, million, being a millionaire and uh, having his own career. Uh, but yeah, it was it was incredible. From that, I started to record those songs and then really doubled down on performing as the gay pimp, doing bigger and bigger shows. I was I performed at a there was this legendary club promoter named Dean Johnson, who's also a rock uh a rock singer in his band, The Velvet Mafia, and he would take over the legendary rock club CBGB's once a month for a show called Homocore. And he would have people like Rufus Wainwright be the headliner, and then he would pack in all the other queer acts that were sort of bubbling up at the time. So I started to do big shows like that. And then of course, because I'm a theater queen, I wanted to make the whole world 
uh, you know, a reality. So we started performing a show called Gay Pimp and the Dirty Gay Teen Pop Superstars, which was <laughs> a, a review of with drag queens and go-go boys and all these people. And we would perform this huge, like, you know, hour and a half review of all these songs that I had been creating and eventually ended up on my album, Dirty Gay Hits. Um, songs like Wrong Fag to Fuck With, Girl, I Fucked Your Boyfriend, Soccer Practice, Dirt, a song called Dirty Gay Stuff, which went, baby, all that I want to do is dirty gay stuff with you and the soccer team, too. <laughs> and that eventually uh, a Broadway producer and director named Richard J. Alexander came to see that show and he loved it. And he said, you know, he, he was he's like he's an incredible person who's always he's directed Bette Midler. He's directed Barbara Streisand. But he's always looking to give a hand to other queer performers. And he came to the show and was like, I love this. I love what you're doing. What do you want to do? What do you want to do next? And at that time, I had just seen Kevin Aviance, who had made a video for his song called The Rhythm Is My Bitch. And it was a revelation to me. I think I saw it at an after hours at the director's house in Soho at a loft at five in the morning. And I thought it was the most glamorous fucking thing I'd ever seen in my life. And so I said, well, what I want to do is make a video. Now, why I wanted to make a video is full, just living in delusion because um, there was no YouTube. There was no place for this video to go at that time. But that is what I thought. I wanted to make a video and I wanted to become this fantasy pop star. So I teamed up with the director who did Rhythms of My Bitch, Richard J. Alexander, gave us the budget. I think it was $5,000. And I cast all of my dancers and drag queens that I've been working with. And we made the video for soccer practice, not really with a plan of what was next or where it was supposed to go. It was just about making this piece. And then, you know, the video went up on my website and got service to the video bars around the country, which I didn't even really understand was a thing. Uh, At that time in the early 2000s across America, there were a lot of bars that would just not, that would just play videos all, all day long. So they would play club remixes and they would get serviced the long club remix version of videos. And so they, they would, they were quite a thing. I did not know it was happening. That and the video ended up going to number one on that chart. It got downloaded from my website like two million times, which at that time was unheard of. Um, and I was really hardly on the internet, but it really started to spread around the internet and eventually got put on MTV Europe in regular rotation, MTV Asia in regular rotation. I got asked to do a Comedy Central special hosted by Alan Cummings, where I performed at a huge theater uh, soccer practice and got a job on the Ricky Lake show from that. I, it really was the jumping off point. Yeah, how fabulous is that? I love it. And the video for people that haven't seen it, and there can't be many people on earth that haven't seen it, um, is is a is a treat for the gay eye, isn't it? Let's be honest, it's uh, beautifully queer. Yes, you know, and I think like there there is something to be said about that video in particular at that time because we weren't in a place where there was a lot of powerful gay characters coming in and telling straight people to bend the fuck over or to get out of their way or being a hundred percent fully queer in a powerful manner in the video. It starts like in the locker room where we follow our hero. Who's like a Abercrombie, literally the guy who started it was one of my backup dancers who was an Abercrombie model um, and was the perfect sort of fantasy jock character. And he's in the locker room sort of being like, Hey bro, Hey dude to all his guys. And then out of the steam of the shower comes me dressed as the gay pimp in rhinestone jeans, wearing a shirt that says gay pimp in rhinestones with sunglasses. And I, then I say, hey, dude, hey, dude, and pull him into the mist and then take him on sort of a metaphorical journey through gay, gay life, gay sex with the song Soccer Practice, which sort of, you know, makes, you know, makes all things supposedly straight soccer, football, army, navy, into metaphors for gay sex. And you have drag queen cheerleaders and the soccer dancers, and we're dancing on the dance floor, the the soccer field. 
And I don't think people had seen, certainly not in my age group at that time, seen a queer pop star in quotes, because obviously I wasn't a pop star, but I was fantasizing that I was one. And, and a song with that attitude. We were in a very apologist era for queer stuff at that moment. I mean, the gayest we got was like Will and Grace with Jack and Will. And Will, who was supposed to be the hero, was very like straight coded and like, you know, I just want a boyfriend. And like Jack was like the femme one and the funny one. But we weren't getting one and being like, get the, the fuck out of my way, straight people. I'll fuck your brother. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that type of power i think really hit with people um obviously in the fact that it was a visual treat and had drag queens and hot guys but i think that taking the the thing that took me there which was feeling my own power i think was something that was in the air for a lot of a lot of people who were my age at that time and it really became a thing like and i still hear from people today that that video inspired them and they were obsessed with it and they you know it was it was a moment it's so true. It's a place that I would happily spend the rest of my life. And let's talk about another of your songs, Man Areas, that as we speak right now, 22 million streams on Spotify. Mm. Hello, that's no, that's, no, that's no chicken feed right there, is it? That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, do you, are you surprised by, you know, how something, you know, just takes off? That's a fucking delight. You know, it's like I... Uh... In 2010, I recorded my last full-length record called The Gayest of All Time. That was coming off of about eight years of doing Gay Pimp pretty much full-time, recording records, touring, um, making videos. And I made – I think I recorded Man Areas in 10 minutes as sort of like an extra song (laughs) to do. I had gone to the cock the night before I was visiting New York, gone to the cock and partied with all the go-go boys and remember having a very erotic time. And like, then the next morning we woke up hungover and I was like, there's one more song we gotta do. I've got it in my head. And we recorded it and we did make a video for it at the cock, which you can see now, which is a, a great video. And it did well. You know, it was an, I had made like, I think that whole album, I had made a video for pretty much every song on that album. And I worked that record for a while and it did well. It got the album did well on that video. I think had about a hundred thousand views, which was for that time really good for me. But then, you know, that was it. I really thought like it was probably one of my dirtiest songs. It was really not something I thought like, this is my mainstream hit. And then I kind of retired from doing music because that's when Hey Queen started. And I really was focused on launching that, building that. And, you know, you kind of got to be in a moment to be really feeling yourself to sell those songs in that way. And I wasn't really in that mode. I was really in the mode of building and creating Hey Queen. So that just sort of sat, you know, in the, in the background, the videos do their own work. And then sometime around 2021, me and the guy that produced it with me, Adam Joseph, we started to notice that on TikTok, there was like, oh, isn't it funny? There's like 60 videos where people are doing man areas using the sound. And then we were like, huh, isn't it interesting that there's like 200 videos? Wow, there's a thousand videos. And then suddenly we were like, we should probably check and see how this song is doing on Spotify. And at that time, it had like a million streams. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And TikTok had gotten the... uh, randomly the beginning of the song, which goes, this goes to the strippers and the fucking porn stars and the sexy motherfuckers showing shit on the bar had been, was the sound service to TikTok and people, because of course it said strippers and porn stars, people took that and were, you know, living themselves for that moment. And then that it gave the song a whole new life and, you know, 22 million views later i think the video has half a million views uh the you know the song has 22 million spins on spotify and uh we've been thrilled that it uh that it has a whole new life and like this is the dirtiest nastiest song there was a moment where people were like oh my god this song is so misogynistic and then other people in the comments would be like it's about guys (laughs) 
Exactly. Hello. I, I love it. The figures are climbing every day. Uh, we must talk Hey Queen as well. I mean, what an iconic series. I think for anybody that loves Drag Race, you know, Hey Queen, and now look at her. It's the ultimate kiki. It's the ultimate party. It's the ultimate sort of fan show. Um, with Hey Queen, obviously, you presented that with the late, great Lady Red Couture as well. Uh, what are your memories of the initial days of that? Well, you know, Hey Queen came about because I had done another show with the people that became my producing partners on that. I did a show called Whoa Dude, which was like finding clips of the the gayest things straight people had done in the internet. And um, that show had gotten about a million views and they sort of said, hey, what do you want to do next? And I thought, you know what I'll do is like an interview show. And at the time, it was the thought was to be very much like a Charlie Rose <laughs> where it was just like a, me and one other person sitting across the desk from each other. And I would say, Hey queen. And they would say, Hey queen. And then we would have a chat. And that was it. I thought I would do eight episodes be out, but I had met lady red not too long before that. I had discovered her like performing at hamburger Mary's in West Hollywood doing a big gospel number. And of course I had fallen deep in love with her. And I had written her a song and we started to hang out. She was in my video for Dickmatized. And um, I thought as I was conceptualizing the Hey Queen project, I thought, well, you know what? If I have Lady Red as my co-host, she can kind of be like the Ed McMahon. You know, Ed McMahon was Johnny Carson's sort of announcer and sort of side guy, uh, you know, who would sit and sort of laugh and have conversation with him at the top and then sit there while the guests talk to Johnny and, and interject. And I thought like, well, if I have Lady Red, we can chat at the top because we always had really a lot of fun just talking to each other. And then she can sit on the side uh, during the interviews and she'll also be a a, you know, a queer, another queer presence. And also I thought like, you know, if anyone is, is rude or cunty to me, a lady red will not take that mess. So it's even better. Um, and so that's what really changed it into the version that we did today. I mean, and the first show is, was extremely low budge. I mean, we were, we got, we had gotten this studio. I think we used like the table from the reception area at the studio and covered it with a sparkly tablecloth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just started doing it and it just was a natural fit. And luckily RuPaul was one of the very first guests and he was extremely generous and great to do it. And it was really quite a moment to have RuPaul on there. I think Drag Race was in about season four, but it was because of that, that people started to really put their eyes on it. And then Drag Race was also coming up at the same time because the show wasn't about talking to just drag queens. It was really just about gay people. I think our very first guest was Calpurnia Adams, the trans icon. RuPaul was second. Then we talked to Miles Davis Moody, who was a member of the pit crew. Detox was a guest. But then as the queens from Drag Race, who were then becoming way more famous than ever, started to see RuPaul and other queens. They're like, well, I want to come on and I want to come and I want to come on. And we started to grow at the same time as that show became like a national and worldwide obsession. So it became the place that queens could come. And it wasn't like it was now where like there's not only social media, but like every podcast and every blog and every things that even entertainment weekly and all these other big places are doing where the Queens can go tell their side of the story. That's maybe not in the edit that you saw on TV. We were really one of the only places where you could come and not explain yourself, but you know, explain yourself, talk about your past, give your history, give your take. And so it really became the go-to place for Queens to come tell their story. And for me telling the story, queer stories really is was the goal of the whole thing to really put a spotlight on all the people in our community and to be able to share their history their experience their triumphs their sorrows and and all of that the connection between you and lady red couture on that show was incredible um, and you actually asked her to come and live with you didn't you after befriending her Yes. I mean, Lady Red was had a very hard life in a lot of respects. I mean, she had such an incredible spirit and was such an incredible performer. But about halfway through the first part of the season, you know, I would go pick her up on the from the train where she was living in Long Beach. And 
she would, there would be difficulty or she wouldn't be able to get there. Or, you know, I remember being like, you need a different outfit and you have to try to do this or that. It just started to become clear to me that Lady Red actually didn't have a place to live. She was homeless and she was living in motels. And she was going to work at this gay bar she worked at, working, trying to make enough money to make enough money to book another motel for her to stay in the next night and then doing it all over again. She started to basically live on my couch. And then when one of my roommates moved, well, I had one roommate. When my roommate moved out, I was like, okay, well, you're going to move in with me. So she, yeah, ended up living with me because, you know, she was, she didn't have a family that was supportive. They, they sort of just left her out there and we were building this thing together and I really needed her to be in a place where she was stable and safe. Yeah. She, she lived with me. I mean, she lived with me until the day she died. Um, When she died, I mean, obviously that hit you hard. Do Do you still feel her now? I mean, you still get those moments when you feel her presence? Uh, definitely. I mean, you know, she's, uh, she was quite a special person and, uh, it's definitely, it was a huge, you know, we spent really like eight years building this thing together and also in many ways for her, you know, there were a lot of times where I was doing so much work, editing the show, directing the show, doing all this, booking everything. And that I was kind of like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. But a lot of it was like, I have to, we have to get to the next level. We have to get to the next thing so that not only can we do that, but Lady Red can finally (laughs) be secure in her own life. And their dream was we wanted to get her on drag race. We wanted her to be able, I wanted her to be able to sort of get out of the nest and to be able to fly on her own. If there's a drag race in the afterlife, she's there winning right now. She's She's got that crown on her head. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, obviously, now we have Look At Her as well, a fabulous TV show. Everybody needs to watch that. Um, the name actually came from Mother Rue herself, did it not? Well, not from her, but for her. So we, when RuPaul was on the show, we went on the original Hey Queen uh, episode two. We wanted to have a chance to play some kind of game. And this was something thought of very quickly. Um, We wanted to play a game where she would talk about other girls from drag race. And so we knew that the key was to make RuPaul laugh. And, you know, if you know, nightlife and club culture and club tracks, there's a long history of a song called get ha, get ha, get ha, get ha. And there was a lot of, you know, ballroom culture, you know, brought that ha into who is she? Get ha. And so I knew if I, I sort of took on that voice and was like, look at ha, that it would make RuPaul laugh and that it did. And uh, we thought that was just going to be a one-time game. But because every guest that we came on, if we weren't going to play look at ha with them, they would be like, what? I'm not going to play Look at Her. So it became a nor- a, a, an every every episode thing within the show. And then around season three, we were like, you know, it was so popular that we thought, like, let's make that the official second part of the show, which is they play the full half hour of Look at Her. And so, yeah, and then it, it went from there. It's a fantastic show. It really is. Let's have a little bit of gay old time fun now, Johnny. Fantasy. You can have the ultimate dinner uh, dinner party. You can have five perfect dinner date guests, LGBTQ or otherwise, living, dead, whatever. You, and make them famous so we know who they are, obviously. Who would you pick and why? Oh, I think this is easy. Uh, really... It's the cast of Paris is Burning. (laughs) (laughs) Willie Ninja, Dorian Corey, Pepper LaBeja. Then I want to throw in my favorite living diva, Martha Wash. And we'll throw in Kevin Aviance too there for fun. That is a very stylish, glamorous party right there. Mm-hmm. That is going to be good. Um, and what are we serving for dinner? We're serving cunt. <laughs> <laughs> All the way. And um, what is your best ever experience? I think this is going to be quite a hard one because it sounds like you've had many. Your best ever experience in an LGBTQ plus safe space? Best ever experience. God, I've really had so many. I mean, there was the time that my friends. Uh, who were all my the drag queens that worked at my parties uh, put on a show for me where they all 
performed as the Golden Girls for me. That was pretty incredible. The God, there's there's just so there's so many incredible moments. I mean, I because I was working in nightlife and producing events, I was able to put on the shows that to me were my fantasy shows with the fantasy cast because they were all my friends. Or like, you know, go go. Like I remember working for the Saint at large doing uh they were doing a luche libre though they did the black party and the theme was luche libre which was like the mexican wrestler masks and all that and they said what do you want for your section and i was able to go all the way back to little johnny mcgovern in the locker room and be like well my section is not going to be that kind of wrestling mine's going to be varsity wrestlers and they created an entire locker room set for this section of the party and all the go-go boys were like wrestling on mats and and dancing on go-go boxes in singlets giving you the full varsity wrestling fantasy you know i've just had i've had a lot of incredible incredible moments that uh were you know in in safe spaces with people that i loved around me and you know they consider to continue to inspire me today What's the song that would get you dancing? What gets you onto that dance floor and throwing some shapes? Oh, let's see. I mean, Got To Be Real uh, by Cheryl Lynn definitely always makes me move it. I Don't Know Anybody Else by Black Box featuring Martha Wash. And then what's something from today that I, I really love? I mean, really, the any the the entire Martha Wash Black Box catalog is my jam. Like, I was obsessed with it in, in high school. Oh, and Love Sensation by Lolita Holloway, which it later became Right on Time by Black Box. Those really get me going. And Sylvester. Sylvester, not Mighty Real, which is a great song, but Sylvester has two other songs, which I am really obsessed with called Can't Stop Dancing. And um, God, what is the other one? It's, it's, it's eluding me. But he has, he has these other disco songs. And of course, Martha Wash was his backup singer. So there's a lot of that. I, anything with a screaming diva and a big beat really gets me going. Sold. Love it. Have you ever done the gay holiday, the typical gay holiday, Johnny? <laughs> My holidays have all been on work trips. You know, I've traveled so much for work that those are my vacations in many ways. Uh, you know, it's kind of better than a vacation because everything's free and they pay you to be there. So <laughs> cruises, you know, I toured the world with Dita Von Tees and that was pretty much the greatest vacation everyone, anyone could ever have. We, I toured with her for about five years and that's performing at the biggest, most glamorous opera houses and gorgeous theaters and then staying at places like the Four Seasons or the Orient Hotel or wherever. I mean, we did Europe, Asia, Australia. That was the greatest vacation I could ever have. You're not paying for it. Every night you're screamed and cheered for by thousands of people. And then you can go back home to the fancy hotel and make love to whatever gentleman's on your grinder grid. Oh, do you know what? Perfect life. Um, you have had so many beautiful moments in your life, and I'm sure you will continue to have many for many years to come. But what is your proudest, most rainbow-flavoured moment? One one moment that you just think, yeah, that was that was queer joy. You know what? what uh, you know, beyond, with all of the projects, the best moments for me are when I hear back from the people who have either listened to my podcast. You know, I do a new podcast now called Johnny McGovern is Gay as Fuck. And I did a podcast for about 15 years called Gay Pimpin' with Johnny McGovern. The combination of that podcast, Soccer Practice, and Hey Queen, you know, when, when I see people in public, they tell me how much those – whatever piece of work was the one for them meant something for me, for, for them, either help them come out or feel good about themselves or help them go to sleep or whatever it was. That, to me, is really the, the queer joy moment for me because it makes all of this silly shit that I was just doing to keep my own fantasy life alive meant that it 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 really meant something to, to people and that it was all worth it. Well, Johnny McGovern, continue to do the stuff that matters, but continue to do the silly shit as well, because we love it, quite frankly. Can I say thank you for joining us here today and for proving that indeed, Johnny McGovern, well, your life is definitely a gay old time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my pleasure. And uh, yeah, if everybody check out my new podcast, Johnny McGovern is Gay AF. You can get it on all podcasting platforms. And if you want to go deeper with me, I podcast up to three times a week on Patreon, which is patreon.com 
slash gayest of all time, that's where you get the real insight to you, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) That is the way to do it. Johnny, thank you. You've been an absolute star. A delight to talk to you and have have a gay old time, Nigel. (laughs) Thank you. I will. That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Johnny as much as I did. If you'd like to experience more rainbow joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple, through the Gaydio app, or wherever you're listening right now. And do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in. If you'd like to follow the podcast online, then head to my Instagram account at a gay old time podcast. And you can also find out more about it at all the w's.nigelmay.net. Thanks a million to Juliet at Pineapple Audio Production for making everything so sparkly and gorgeous. I'll be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with an inspirational individual. Until then, from me, Nigel May, sending all the love and hoping that whatever you're up to, if it applies to you, that you're having a gay old time. Enjoy. Enjoy.